Hi listeners, uh, Paul here with a special treat for you today. Um, if you're listening to this on uh, 3D Beam Up, you know that this week we are, well next week, we're going to be talking about um, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, a, a great episode. And um, if you listen to um, 3D Beam Up, you might know that um, I've done another Star Trek podcast, uh, Hi-Fi Sci-Fi podcast, um, that looked at TNG um, as a series, uh, the first few seasons. Um, you also might have listened to that podcast, because uh, we're, we're cross-posting this one, um, and maybe you didn't know that I have another podcast about uh, the original series, uh, 3D Beam Up. Um, anyway, uh, a few years ago, um, when we were finishing up season two for Hi-Fi Sci-Fi, uh, we were doing some bonus episodes, uh, and uh, myself and my, my co-host, who you'll hear on here, uh, Jason, um, had guests on uh, regularly on our episodes, and uh, Abby was one of our regular guests, and we had her on to talk about City on the Edge of Forever. Um, this was uh, quite a bit before we um, decided to do 3D Beam Up, um, but as you know, uh, Abby and I are, are two of the, the main hosts on that. So um, this is an, uh, just a fun one that we've had sitting around for a while. We never mixed it until recently, but um, since we talk about um, City on the Edge of Forever quite a bit, which we're going to do next week on the show, we figured we'd uh, put this one out, uh, do a little bit of cross-promotion. Uh, and get you some of that that um, conversation we had uh, a few years ago about this one. Um, we'll still be posting next week um, in terms of uh, 3D Beam Up, our regular chat uh, with me, Abby, and Chelsea uh, about City on the Edge of Forever. But uh, for this week, uh, have fun with this uh, extra little bonus. Uh, again, if you um, enjoy 3D Beam Up, uh, if you listen to that, uh, Go back and check out uh, Hi-Fi Sci-Fi. It's a fun podcast as well. Um, if you listen to Hi-Fi Sci-Fi and you didn't, uh, you don't know about 3D Beam Up, uh, take a listen to that too. Um, we're almost halfway through uh, the original series. Uh, we have some good episodes left, some bad episodes left, but um, but this one, obviously, City on the Edge of Forever, quite a good one. So anyway, I'll let you get to it. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Jason, and I'm Paul, and this is still the Hi-Fi Sci-Fi podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 28, City on the Edge of Forever. I don't remember that one. Is that the one where Data uh, tells jokes for 45 yeah. minutes and it feels yeah. like it goes on forever? <laughs> it's the one where they find the city and it's... Um, really thought I'd come up with something witty during that time. <laughs> it's the sequel it. to the Season 2 episode, somehow in Season 1. Uh, the Royale, where they find oh, yeah. the city that the Royale is in. Of course, of course. Oh, yes. yeah, it's in New New Vegas. Right, exactly. Now, we're uh, talking about the original series episode. So, strap in. We're going back to the 60s. Let's punch it. So between season two and season three of Star Trek The Next Generation, we thought we would go back to the roots of Star Trek and examine uh, an episode from the original series. And not just any episode from the original series, one that is a Hugo Award winner, uh, one that is largely considered uh, one of the best examples of classic Star Trek, and uh, one that I think 
will be interesting to talk about even, you know, uh, 40, 50, 50 plus years later. How about that? So joining did, us. Did, oh, oops, did, I, did I hear you right that we had this original idea be, between seasons one and two, and we are now between seasons two and three. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so not only is this uh, 50 some odd years in the making, uh, it's also in our <laughs> in our production over 18 months in the making. <laughs> But we somehow got together it's finally to get on the Skype call. And for such a momentous occasion, we thought we would bring back one of our favorite guest hosts. So Abby is joining us for this conversation. Abby, thanks for being on the show. Hey, guys. Thanks. I'm happy to be back. So you uh, are here to talk about uh, this episode. And you, uh, you know, I think you came to us, right? Or early on, we involved you I in the conversation? I think so. I think you guys were talking about doing some of original Trek, and then mm -hmm. you asked me if I would do that. And I was like, yeah. And then you're like, what episodes? And I was like, well, obviously, City on the Edge of Forever would be a top one, and Devil in the Dark would be my other choice. So this is this was, I think, just kind of like, yeah, one of the best episodes of Trek. If I can get in on that, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> then why not? Count exactly. me in. Well, and it's a good uh, it's a good excuse to uh, go back into the original series because I feel like we are now in this point where there might be people listening to this podcast who uh, even the original Star Trek, like not just the original Star Trek, but Star Trek: The Next Generation might be generationally beyond them um, because you know TNG got off the air in '94. Um, there's a lot of folks, I work on a college campus, so there's a lot of people that I regularly interact with that were like, what's 1994? Uh, so we, we <laughs> yeah. warp speed back to... I wasn't to, born then. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so we warp speed back all the way to 1967, and, um, I think this episode is really fascinating to, to watch because obviously, you know, there's camp, um, but because it's a <laughs> period piece, I feel like it does circumvent a lot of the problems of, of classic Trek. Um, be because, you know, yeah. it's 20s, 30s, you know, basically. Yeah, it helps, certainly, although there's still definitely the, the trappings of sexism and there's one female character other than Uhura, right. and Uhura's only in it for five minutes at the beginning and the end. Yes. And she says and... something along the lines of, like, <laughs> I'm so scared, Captain. I forget her line. Yeah, she, yeah <laughs> she, she literally does, Captain, I'm frightened. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a very classic... Uh, women in tra early track, especially. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of upsetting, but. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so we. Least, yeah. Go at ahead. least the character of Edith, though. I think she does. She does. She does play against the type a little bit of a Star Trek woman, especially one when they time travel. That's true. So she's, it's true. She's she is kind of the the damsel in distress trope, but she's also very smart and very driven and and doesn't really believe anything Kirk and Spock tell her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, her BS detector is on point uh, in terms of just not buying any of it, which I thought was really nice. Um, well, she also likes, she, she's also making claims about spaceships and stuff like that. And <laughs> mm -hmm. they do kind yeah. of put her in a place of, um, yeah, having a lot of skills to, to read people, to read situations, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, and I suppose we should talk a little bit about <clears throat> just the framework of the plot, just to recap. I mean, the Enterprise, it's a... It's a how, do, how do you like the, the framing of this with McCoy? Uh, you know, I'll, I... I'll toss I, that out there right away. I thought it was an efficient way to get the plot going. Um, I didn't Google, you know, the, the Cordrazine, uh, you know, because <laughs> it's just some, I assume, space drug that was made up. 
um, the first hit that I got was Memory Alpha. It's actually Pixie Sticks. It's the main substance <laughs> in Pixie Sticks. <laughs> Two drops of this brings uh, Sulu back to all smiles, but a whole syringe turns McCoy into a raving lunatic. Um, so, of course, we keep a vial full of it. You know, yeah. instead of a proper well, dose, right? You know, why not walk around lunatic, with a proper dose? Yeah, a raving lunatic who is apparently really smart and knows kung fu because he just knocks out that transport officer, no problems, gets away from literally everyone on the bridge with no issues. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, fun fact that uh, Cordrazine is referenced in the original series uh, in Star Trek: The Next Generation. A callback is made to it, where they use what is supposedly a more potent version of it called Tricordrazine. Uh, Doctor Beverly Crusher attempted to use that to revive Worf uh, in an episode where he is paralyzed. Actually, so can't wait to, to get to the quad Cordrazine in uh, Discovery. But... <laughs> no, Discovery. So... Discovery is pre. Pre TOS timeline though it is, so it would just be regular. <laughs> They're old... gonna have like semi cordrazine, <laughs> <laughs> quasi cordrazine duo. You can tell exactly um, where you are in the timeline by how many cordrazines yeah. you have. So I, we were talking before. Um, you guys said you read up a little bit on um, the the sort of writing this went through, um, and I mentioned so. So I have. Um, I've loved this episode for a long time, but I also, um, before recording this, went back and read um, Harlan Ellison's, um, who, who wrote this, the original drafts of his, his work. And, and um, one of the things about this episode is that a lot got changed. Um, a lot yeah. got changed from Harlan Ellison's original work to what's on screen. Um, and in a, in a very rare Trek fashion, the original screenplays are, are fantastic. And it somehow got changed a whole bunch in many, many ways. And still ended up somehow to be one of the strongest episodes, which which maybe speaks to the original premise. But sure. but do you know what um, the McCoy arc here replaced something in the original script? Did you guys have? Did you read up on that? Drugs. Drugs. Drugs on the Enterprise. Oh really? Wow. And there was a drug wow. dealer. So one of the yeah. crew member uh, had found and was was basically had a some crew members hooked on these crystals that like give you emotions and stuff. Um, <laughs> but he's a, a, a drug dealer on the, the crew and um, get in, in different drafts of this script, gets gets caught, um, murders someone, and then escapes the planet. Murderers! Killers! And so <laughs> right? Exactly. So they're chasing someone who is a murderer, um, uh-huh. who is trying to get away from them. And that's what McCoy was then really I, th- I think maybe the sl- sloppiest writing into a part yeah that's what mccoy is taking the place of yeah he feels a little shoehorned in some places yeah to, yeah it's it's a little bit and then it's a little too neat at the end as well when they yep. they just kind of run like, into him I'm all on better the now. it's like hey <laughs> oh the okay, resolution of this episode here. happens <laughs> almost immediately which is kind of like oh yeah okay well that happened goodbye and yep. then they yeah <laughs> and there's it's... a lot of that talk when when you read through the uh, the original scripts have a lot of commentary by people and and they talk about the idea that um, Roddenberry's vision at this point and and his continuing vision long after this was that um, he saw a script where someone on the Enterprise was selling drugs and wasn't perfect, and he said, that's not who they are. They're perfect. No one is evil. No one would do that. Mm. Um, so it had to get taken out. Um, but it's also that idea that in an hour, they do a whole bunch of things, and then they show up, and everything is the same. Nothing has changed. Yeah, um, which is classic Trek. Because it's, yeah, yeah I have a Trek. note. I have a note about at the end where Jim is so upset that, that Edith has died, and... Um, 
uh, and it was like, oh no, this is going to be so mentally damaging to someone. And then I was like, wait, it's original series, not next gen. So nothing matters week to week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. It might as well have never happened because Jim is never going to reference this again. Yeah. Remember the person that you fell in love with who you thought you could share, you know, the universe with and then realized you had to kill her to save the timeline? No, you don't remember that because now <laughs> no. we've got to fight a Gorn. <laughs> And yeah. there is a new alien lady yep. love uh-huh. on the horizon. Exactly. Well, and so in the original, uh, in the original screenplay, there was a lot of room here. There's an epilogue at the end with Spock and Kirk in his quarters, where Kirk is sad about this, and they have a conversation, uh, and a deep conversation about um, what this means and like how hurt Kirk is, and and that's kind yeah. of gone, right? That's something. Well, that, but yeah. that's not. I don't know that that's a bad thing because I kind of I really enjoy the ending of this and it's an ending they had to fight for because sure. it's they had to say you know let's get the hell out of here and it was not hell was not used as a profanity on television really before this episode oh I didn't realize so, that I, I had yeah, thought about yeah. that I guess uh, because so, it, is so... I, it was it was in the Wikipedia article wow <laughs> yeah that's a thing wow talk about a thing that would breeze let's right get the past gosh a... darn it out of here yeah that yeah. would breeze right past a modern well, audience well and that's why yeah. they fought for it because you know this this has been a, a really harrowing experience for Jim and he's you know get the hell out of here and yeah. they had to fight for that line but they kept it so very cool very cool yeah well, it's so the other Sorry. Uh, no, I, I was just going to say it, um, it's one of those things that um, you kind of – I was thinking this throughout the entire episode that that's another example of how this show um, – it's hard to see now because it's over 50 years old, but how it did break so much ground because it's easy to uh, to fall into the traps of, of, you know, oh, obviously the sets are made out of cardboard. Holy crap, the 60s were sexist. Um, <laughs> and, and like, you know, oh, they just said hell. Like to us, that's all quaint. But in, in 1967, that it, these were all things that you didn't do. Um, you know, there, there is, you know, we talk about how Uhura has so very little to contribute, but the fact that she was there in 1967 was itself, you know, groundbreaking. So it's, it's really a fascinating cultural artifact to hold up because there are all these things that like kind of go against the story in terms of like, oh, that's clearly of its time. But then you look at the pieces of the story and how it plays out in the story that it's trying to tell. Uh, this is a blueprint for a Star Trek story time travel story i mean like this mm-hmm. is oh, oh absolutely this is the scaffolding that basically props up every time yeah. any crew from any trek series goes back in time like, yeah and it is yeah. very and very they... clean um in terms of that you mentioned three things and i've got i've got notes on each of them but um <laughs> so the ending still i've got a little more about the ending but also the the set design and then the um the fact the gender differences which 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 one would you like to <laughs> chat about first? Uh, well, let's let's dive right into you know the heavy stuff. I guess we can talk about the gender differences. Sure. So in the original script, um, and this is something that Harlan Ellison um, talked about a lot in in kind of commentary on it. Um, they go back to the ship um, when they come out because they think oh. Or when he goes in, they they go back up to the ship. It's not just as her her says the ship isn't there anymore. They go up and the ship is different, which I hate that as a trope. But um, it's a pirate ship now, and they have space pirates. <laughs> of course it is. <clears throat> of course it is. Of course. <laughs> and there's space pirates, and they want to kill them, and they realize like they have to Does hold Spock them. Spock have a goatee too. Oh well, it's not Spock. I think that's the <laughs> I only. Know, I'm just... At least in the original script, I hate it when it's the same people but different. At least these are just <laughs> random space pirates, I guess. Oh, that's it's good. still kind of broken, but um, 
they realize that like they have to stop them from getting to, they have to get back down to the planet but they have to stop these space pirates from using the teleporter and following them and so the person that kirk chooses to hold off the space pirates is janice rand and says can you hold this and she is the one left in command of the enterprise or this ship um and and harlan and ellison had that in there and talked about it a lot as he thought that having her as the strong character who would be the one to hold the ship was something he really wanted in there and it got cut Mm. And and, and left left with this one line from Uhura. I wouldn't mind Rand have having that position, except for the fact that in the chain of command that would not have happened. Sure, but well, the idea was that like it was Kirk, Spock, and her, and then like some red shirts that went back up there, and she was the next in chain of command after Kirk okay. and Spock. Okay, okay, that um, makes me feel better because I'm like if they're going back up to the ship and yeah, you know, that Sulu's there's only a few out, of them. It's like Sulu's above her. Yeah, Sulu's not there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sulu's not there. Yep, yep. I do think um, like I do think that offers some interesting. Um, obviously some interesting avenues for storytelling and a way more progressive story. But I do like the fact that it's clean by just yeah, and cutting out just all, of the, all of the other elements. Yeah. Like it's now it's just smoother. the characters. Yeah. yeah. But it could have um, been. Yeah. It, was, it was once in the script. Could yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. The, um, the set design, I'll jump right to the set design because that's quick too. Yeah. Um, apparently, so the original set design, and Harlan Ellison designed a set that in words was way too crazy to ever be able to produce. Um, used a lot of the way he describes it is beautiful in the original uh, screenplay um, this city on mountains um, I could pull up the exact words but you could as well they're, they're very good but <laughs> apparently um, and I'll read from um, I think this was I think this is a commentary by someone but maybe Disa C. Fontana actually um, as the episode produced approached production there was a glitch in the art direction Star Trek's art director Matt Jeffries fell it was the flu the department head, Roland Bud Brooks, stepped in to avoid delay. Um, he read it. He got doing this. And when, he, uh, when Matt returned, he said, what the hell is that? He was looking at this set, um, saw runes and all this, the Grecian columns, and, and didn't remember it. And as he tells the story, um, the second guy who came in, uh, Bud Brooks, uh, had had two drinks with dinner the night he read the script, puzzled by the description of rune stones covering the landscape. He had flipped through his dictionary and come to runes before he got to runes. Deciding a typo, he had proceeded to design the runed stones of the planet as Grecian instead of this original design. Interesting. It, I did find it really hilarious that there's just this time portal and then a bunch of Roman or Greek like columns. Roman columns, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you could see like a, the ancient structures, very, very Roman structures off in the distance. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like they were also and, supposed to be guardians, actual um, people who had conversations with them instead of just a arch too. But and glowing rock uh, that is sassy with Spock and sassy. I do and love Spock the sassy. Spock. Yeah, I do love the <laughs> sassy rock. I really do too. Your your science knowledge is obviously primitive, and, and Spock's like really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you're tell. a rock. <laughs> well, and and what I find funny, and this is, I, I I think I've mentioned this a few times throughout our podcast of um, uh, just kind of the pedestal that fans put shows up on, and how that leads to problems, especially for franchises that are over fifty years old, and and I I love to look at stuff like this because. Uh, people who are critical of the direction that Star Trek is going or how, you know, how canon is being, you know, completely, you know, negated. It's like, this is, the, when you get down to it, a a omnipresent 
sort of arch rock thing that can control all time of and space is universe destroying in in any sort of like continuity sense right like oh and the fact mm-hmm. that they just leave it on and walk away yeah yeah they're like, just like right. this will be fun they don't do anything <laughs> at least you know at least in next gen they would have put up beacons and been yeah, like, yeah. stay away yeah but, well they, yeah. they have planets like they have forbidden planets in lore you think they'd at least be like add it to the list yeah, yeah. yep yeah. and maybe build something around it to you know defend it from anybody else who might try to you know use it for ill because like right. yeah this is the kind of thing that you know, any sort of foe of the Federation, if they wanted to get rid of the Federation, all you got to do is send one guy back who's high on Cordrazine and you unravel the entire Federation. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. Where's, where's oh, the Sounds thing? like a plan. Where do I sign up? Yeah. It's also an interesting, um, when you start to talk about how it was designed or how powerful it is, um, and when Spock asks about it, it, it says, like, you can't comprehend me. Like, I am my own beginning, my own end, like, blah, blah, blah. And then when Spock says, hey, could you slow down how fast you show us stuff? He's like, no, I can't, can't do that. That's, nope. I was <laughs> nope. not designed to do that. Literally like, not a feature. I thought you designed yourself. I thought you were your own. <laughs> well, and I want to talk a lot about the the time as well, because I did make a note about that, that at one point um, when they're trying to make it sound old, they say that it's 10, how many centuries old is it, do they say? I think they... They say 10,000 centuries or... So a a century is only 100 years. Or yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. Maybe it's 10,000 millennia. No, they... they, uh, No, I think they say centuries. I don't know. It's a lot. They definitely said 10,000 centuries. And so if you do the math, you add two more zeros onto (laughs) 10,000. That's not very old. (laughs) Like galactically speaking. That's... Well, and in the original te- the, the original teleplay, they, there's a lot of those numbers tossed around, and, and it's very clear that writing in this era, like, I think he uses the word, like, we were around, like, 200,000 years before your dinosaurs, and it's like, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I guess it's Good at least for you. a long time, but um, then 200,000 years before the dinosaurs is way too specific given that time span. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, I don't just know how like, to use those big numbers at that point in terms yeah, of time. Exactly. Because I'd just like to point out that, like, again, you know, nerds, like, love to get, like, nitpicky about this <laughs> stuff. But, you know, the original series kind of gets a free pass because if you want to get nitpicky, yeah. 10,000 centuries is a million years. Uh, and then in the same paragraph, essentially says, I was around before your star burned hot. And Earth's sun yeah. is recorded yeah. to be about 4.6 <laughs> billion years old. So, you know, uh, there's, there's some Numbers problems. Numbers are hard. There's some problems. Math is hard. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, this episode just in, in terms of like, uh, a- as a period piece, because I I find these type of shows like in the '60s like super fun, because clearly there was a lot available that had like a passable 1920s <laughs> like yeah. street scene. But then they can't seem to remember that Clark Gable was not a famous movie star in 1930. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I just <laughs> Kirk remembers. <laughs> he didn't even get an MGM contract until 1930. He was not well known. <laughs> Yep, yep. Anyway, and this and this they is clearly established classic Hollywood nerdery going no, and, and like they it wouldn't be so bad if not for the fact that they locked down the specific year in which it happened right, as 1930, exactly. <laughs> and the fact that it was only 30 some years prior to the present at that time. Yes, <laughs> like come on, guys. Yeah, somebody could have grabbed like a couple of news reels or something and just gone. Wait, when did all this happen? <laughs> Uh, well, it's an interesting point, right? That that they would have to because no internet. 
right? And we think about it as easy, but it's an interesting question. Of, That's you true. write that in and somebody reads it and they say, hmm, was, was that one Clark Gable? Yeah, I bet, he, I bet it was. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to go to an encyclopedia. It's fine. Somebody remembered it, Clark Gable, as, yeah, he was famous in the 30s. Yeah, it's like, well. Yes. Yeah. Which was true, but <laughs> not in 30. Later <laughs> in the decade. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I do I do think that, like, aside from all the, the nitpicky stuff, it, it does... It's fascinating to watch this kind of stuff because, again, it does help it at least escape, you know, the 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 '60s tropes a little bit. That that suddenly you're just watching actors who are are doing a period piece that is way more believable than a 1960s presentation of the 23rd century. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, the, yeah, absolutely. You kind of, I mean, you can still tell it's from the time because I I did get a kick out of like every. Every Edith Keeler scene, like whenever she's got a single shot, it's the soft focus. You know? Oh my god, yeah. that was driving me. I actually have a note about that. I'm like, it really is distracting when they have the soft fo- soft focus lens on on Joan Collins every time she is in a close up. Yeah, I'm just like, it, and it's really distracting mostly because anytime it's because she is the only woman, and they did this a lot in in TOS oh, with constantly. women. They would soft focus the women whenever they had a close-up yep. and they don't do it for the men. So I think it's extra distracting yeah. in this episode Yeah, like what? because it's her and all dudes. Yep. And you really can tell when she's in this really soft focus. <laughs> it's, it's distracting. Like Does McCoy get a little bit at the end when he wakes up? I vaguely remember that scene, like he being in soft focus, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's distracting enough in that. I think that's where my note is, is in that specific scene is when I mentioned it in my notes. So I think. Yeah, maybe was, I'm remembering the yeah. contrast then. Yeah, he, well, yeah the she contrast is, is really. Yeah, yeah. And he's really weird because he's got a lot of weird makeup like going on throughout this whole oh, film. Because yeah. like, you know, when he's like at the height of his craze, he's got this weird like blotch pattern that they've they've put on him in the makeup. But I think. When he wakes up, he might look a little weird because I think they tried to make him look pale um, just to, to be like, oh, he was really sick. But, you know, makeup in the late 60s was not as sophisticated as it is now, clearly. So Nor just, as subtle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I want to, you know, talk about just the, the, the framework of the story, too, because, um, you know, it does it does a lot with what it has, but I think it does it you know, fairly well in terms of how it's like structured and how it progresses from A to B. I also really like, um, you know, you talk about like all of the different things that are in this episode that appear in later Trek. I had kind of forgotten about uh, Spock's, you know, challenge from Kirk basically where Spock is like, I could never build a computer out of the stuff here. Like, and, and, and Kirk <laughs> goads him uh, into what, it. Sticks and bearskins or something. Yeah. Stones yeah. and yeah. Stones and bearskins. Stone knives and bearskins. Stone knives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, but I, I thought that was really cool because they they literally are, they, they lift that years later in TNG in an episode where um, they go back to, uh, the Mark Twain era and and Data's building a, a machine out of parts that they have there. I mean, there's there's yeah, it's just such there's a cool... there's a lot in this episode. I have a, I do have a note about this about how this is a t- like a capsule of TOS in a single episode because I mean mm-hmm. you have the Vulcan Nerfinch, you have Kirk falling in love with the only woman, yep. you have <laughs> an away team mission with all of the important officers on it <laughs> doing yeah. the most dangerous yeah. things. <laughs> You have all these setups for so much of later Trek. It's yeah. insane. 
Mm-hmm. It's so focused, though, right? Because it's in, I mean, it's almost a bottle episode in that yeah. you have three people there and that's it. Nobody else can come. You know no one else there. Um, this is what you've got. And yeah, it, it works well. I think uh, On the computer side, I think it's also interesting that they didn't adopt some of these later poorer tropes like he could have said something about how strong the computer would be or like how many how many kilobytes of of memory it might have or something like that Mm -hmm. and they don't so you're that's helpful but yeah when they five or six pounds of platinum he needs to make it is also (laughs) questionable well when he said a (laughs) small amount and then i was like that's a lot of platinum dude that's a lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know what you're thinking one of the things we're like "Mm, i mean i don't think that i can envision a computer that's going to need that much platinum in the future (laughs) or what you would use it for in a computer but right yep yep um And, and I do, I mean, there's even, there's the beat the clock element because they're, uh, they're trying to get all this information figured out before McCoy arrives. And, um, you know, I, I do think, I do think that the, the acting obviously works as well because I think everyone's really, really good here. And I do like the fact that they find out, you know, cause for a while it's, it's, does Edith Keeler need to die or doesn't she? And then they find out and they have to kind of, you know, keep going. And Kirk is clearly in love with this person. And I feel like both of them at least play this well and are believable in that sense. And, and you know, Shatner's pretty conflicted. You can kind of see it, you know. Well, and it's yeah. the it's the Back to the Future 3 trope, right? Yes. Where you go back in time, <laughs> yeah. accidentally yep. save someone, and then, make sh- then you have to go back and make sure you don't accidentally save someone by letting them die. Yep. Um, which is a, a great trope here. And, yeah, this is done so well even though they're ripping off back to the future three so clearly but <laughs> well clearly yes clearly they're ripping it off well obviously that. that was the 1800s and this is <laughs> yeah right exactly i mean canonically 30s, so... canonically all those things happened in 1885 so yep it's right. known about in 1930 and they really should have seen it coming yeah, yeah for real i mean i also got a plan ahead <laughs> i also really want to talk about the the central premise which um y- you know star trek is often characterized mostly like i mean the central core of it as an optimistic or idealistic show um but i thought it was a really cool plot point and really kind of surprising from star trek to see this idealist be the right person at the wrong time yeah Um, yeah i thought that was it's almost early you know the 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 needs of the many outweighs the needs of the one it's it's kind of that prototype for that eventual thesis of star trek Mm -hmm. it's 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 kind of that early the first thing to do it well and and i'll I'll talk about another i said it's a bunch of other stuff at the end but um the original had a lot more shades of gray in it i think because uh, uh, yeah harlan ellison's version (laughs) because Um, harlan ellison (laughs) because harlan ellison but I, i think that's part of what survived this idea that you know, there's good and bad, and sometimes even the best, Edith is painted as the best character we could ever possibly have, and that she causes a nuclear Armageddon, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By mm-hmm. having the wrong ideas at the wrong time, even though they're the right ideas. Um, but the end of this, so McCoy's not there, right? It's this Beckwith is a drug dealer. Um, he's still there, and in his original version, it's Beckwith that comes out and is about to save Edith and um, Kirk realizes he can't stop him. He doesn't do it. Spock stops him, but then Spock is confused later and says, you know, 
Beckwith is by all rights evil. He is everything evil. Why was he going to risk his life to save her? Um, and then Kirk has some great lines here about, and actually I'll pull up the, I have the lines pulled up, um, about this idea of evil. Um, yeah, you could not stop Beckwith. I understand that. But Beckwith, a moral evil, a killer, selfish and capable of anything. Why? So Kirk says, why did he try to save her at risk of his own life? Um, we look at our race, this parade of men and women, and the unbelievable harm and cruelty they do. And we sigh and we say, perhaps our time has passed. Let the sharks or cockroaches take over. And then without knowing why, without even thinking of it, the worst among us does this great thing, the noble deed, that spark of impossible human godliness. And we say, perhaps the human race is entitled to just a little more sufferance. Let them keep trying to reach the dream. It's hmm. like, and then Spock says, evil can come from good and good from evil. And it's like, yeah, there you go. There's the gray <laughs> exactly. that there's the right. gray in Star Trek that Gene Roddenberry doesn't want. Yeah, right. And I, yeah, it's it's the gray is what makes things interesting most of the time. And I think that's why, even though TOS is is you know held as the classic, and this is the beginning of it all, I think a lot of times that's why people kind of gravitate more towards TNG is because they do explore more of the gray. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, and in what that it means episode, to be human. Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, oh dear! That oh dear. beautiful Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> episode where they talk about how good can be evil and evil can be good. <laughs> That's not at all what happens. <laughs> don't don't watch it. Um, you know, I think. Uh, y- yeah, you've you've really hit upon something here in terms of uh, just the basic tenets of of storytelling and what makes a good story. And I think, um, you know, you, there's so much Star Trek that you can now go back and just kind of chart. But but what's funny to me is you hold up an episode like this, which is uh, you know 1967. It's still season one of the original Star Trek. But then you hold it up against like season one and two of TNG before it really finds its voice. And I think that's why the first two seasons of of The Next Generation look just so quaint and so naive because, um, you know, they took that idealism just a little bit too far to the point where those people aren't recognizable as human sometimes because they're just stiff and emotionless and passionless and and devoid of that thing that, that makes them human. And I think... You know, for all their flaws, you know, Kirk and McCoy and Spock, I, I think they're the, the core of, of the original series because you can still recognize, even in Spock, you know, the, the humanity within them um, and how they're not perfect by nature. They're perfect by, uh, by execution, by their actions, that, that they may not be innately perfect, but they are always reaching for... Um, for that thing that makes them better. And, and I think, yeah. you know, that last scene, I think, kind of does it all, where um, McCoy has no idea what's going on um, because he's been, you know, out of it, literally and figuratively. Um, and then Kirk has to stop him. And I think, I think the exchange between them is so perfect because McCoy turns to him and just says, you know, I could have saved her. Do you know what you've just done? And, and Kirk can answer and Spock has to answer for him. He knows, Doctor. He knows. Um, and I feel like that's you could have written pages of dialogue to try to capture what is done in just a few lines and a few exchanges and glances between some talented actors where mm-hmm. you've got you've got all that emotion there where McCoy is just devastated that he couldn't save her because his friend just stopped him. And Kirk is devastated because he was the one who had to stop him. 
so I, I agree, and and yeah, I I I struggle to say like which I like better, having read the original, um, because I think they're both just so well done. Um, but a big question, right in the original, so Kirk can't bring himself to stop McCoy effectively back with um, yeah. whoever is trying to save her, um, and so Spock has to do it. And and I that's I struggle. Like I'm interested in your opinions, which you think is a better end to it. Um, Kirk being able to stop the other person or Kirk not being able to and Spock having, having to step in? I I think for Star Trek, it's better for Kirk to be able to stop to stop McCoy because Ooh, it's point. the because it's the I I know what I want personally, but this is better for the good of all. And going forward, you know, that's that's the Star Trek way a bit. Whereas if he can't do it and he can't overcome that piece of humanity that won't let him kill this woman that he's come to love, you know, it's that, you know, we're always going to fail. No matter how much we try, no matter what our intentions are, we're going to fail because we're human. Whereas yeah. the more optimistic reading really is Kirk not saving her. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah, I would I would agree that it has it 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 almost robs the moment of its impact if you have Spock do it. Um, yeah, be, I agree. Because Spock is the person who you would expect to have to do it. Because he he just he like as a person, he is striving to strip himself of emotion. Um, so he would clearly be motivated to make the logical choice, you know, I, and I understand that in Star Trek, you know, history, they will obviously bring in undertones of the fact that he's half human and, and all Vulcans have emotion and blah, blah, blah. But, but just as a, as a, as a person and as a character, he, he, that's his core logic. So yeah. logically he will just be the person who says, this is what we have to do. But for Kirk to do it means that, that. Yeah, you're right, Abby. It it is this whole like that's the central human position, right? That we're not perfectly logical people. We 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 are passionately driven by things. And for him to be able to find it within himself to basically just go against everything within him that is saying like she can't die. I love this person, you know, she has to live and be like and for him to say no, the, the I, she can't like this is the choice that has to be made i i feel like makes it impact you know so much yeah i feel like that the whole finale of it would just be robbed of of as much you know visceral emotional impact um as it has if you have spock do it because obviously spock would do it it's kirk who, yeah. who you wouldn't do expect. It in a heartbeat. yeah yeah so he he kind of has to be the person to to do it to make it really hit you know i guess um, yeah, yeah, and I think that makes sense in the lore, right? Especially the way, yeah. Now, what I would have loved is, you know, maybe some more follow-up <laughs> because... Oh, sure, exactly, right? <laughs> you, you yeah, put and, it, there, you... and again, there, originally there was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was more discussion. But in a, um, you know, and and I, I'll drop this in here now because I know, uh, you know, we're... Our podcast is about ready to start talking about season three of TNG, but we're doing a couple of things here and while we're spinning up for that. That is why I'm excited to start talking about Star Trek Discovery, because uh, the only other series that I can think of, aside from Discovery, is Deep Space Nine in terms of Star Trek that actually does play with things like that in terms of 
okay, we planted this seed back in this episode. That will have impacts on, you know, this A will have impacts on B, C, D, and E. And I think that's the only part of like going back to classic Trek that you sometimes like really start to miss is I would have loved to have seen more about this just in terms of how how it shaped these characters because it so obviously would have like Mm -hmm. if they were real people like I mean you can't go through something like this and not and so that's the part that makes me a little sad is that you know that reset button does rob it of of it's some of its power it's it's Picard's flute from um yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. right it's it's that Mm -hmm. he just keeps it it's not that he talks about it it's just that he has it that that he keeps a memory of it yeah. Um, that is that is physical, um, and and obviously Kirk can't really do that here. I, I guess he could have like maybe he tried to catch her and grabbed a locket or something. That he keeps a locket. Um, yeah. there would be ways to write that, but yeah, again, Star Trek at this point was not trying to be um, have that that sort of continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, your mention of Deep Space Nine, though, um, yeah, they they start to get into the gray characters, and and right immediately Garrick jumps to mind right Garrick may be one of the grayest characters in the in canon um so they get there they get there yeah exactly well and I think too that's that's why it's fascinating to talk about Trek just you know any franchise that goes back 50 years is going to go through you know tonal shifts and and changes in storytelling and things like that and it is so fascinating to to watch people to watch the evolution of this series because when Deep Space Nine came out um, I think people thought, God, is this too like dark? Is this too morally gray? And then you go back to something like this to the roots and you realize that stuff was always there. It's just now we're peeling back another layer and maybe putting more of it in there or allowing it to shape the stories a little bit more or, you know, but I think at the time when Deep Space Nine came out, people were reacting to the next generation, which was very much more optimistic, I think, than even mm-hmm. the original Star Trek was. Um, and Deep Space Nine, I think, kind of came back and said, no, there's some dark stuff here. And that's, yeah, yeah. you know, the it's it's kind of the argument that the light shines twice as bright in the darkness, right? That, that yep. only when you do that kind of stuff, only when you put characters through that, can you see how, how good they actually can be when they have to go through hell first, you know? And I, yeah. I think, I think well, stuff so- like this makes that storytelling more interesting. That's a, that's a good point to seg into some other, I've got a bunch of things from kind of the differences here. Um, but the, this, this, what made it to air had a lot of, you know, talking about um, poverty, talking about the depression, obviously, yeah. um, talking about war, talking about the future. Some of these big ideas that, that we mentioned kind of hold up and are really um, meaningful, just, just, you know, that they hold up over time um, from the sixties, looking back at the thirties, they still make sense here. Um, but there were two other big parts that he had in this original uh, screenplay. Um, one about immigration, um, and there was a lot more pressure, like Spock being in crowds, and a lot more fever of people um, calling him out as an immigrant, and and th- oh, the, wow. the wording in there of like that he is there to to steal jobs, and these same sort of wordings that, um, again, written in the '60s about the mood of the thirties. Um, but you could go back and read these parts and they, they ring still very, very true, maybe even truer today, um, than in the sixties. Um, but there was a lot more emphasis, emphasis on that dark side of, um, how we view people and those differences, which is very true to Trek, um, Mm -hmm. that, that everyone is unique. Um, and in the future, all these problems are solved, but looking back at 
certainly the 30s and the 60s, and even now they're not. Um, so that was in there. There was a lot more of that in there. Yeah, well, even it, what they kept in the, the whole, I mean, the, the facepalm moment of they're trying to, Jim's talking mm, to the police yep. officer when they've stolen the clothes, and they're like, he's Chinese. And I'm like, oh, God. And the oh. rice-picking machine. Oh, yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. horrible. Yeah. I was like, oh, that hurts. That hurts my soul. But, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's, it's not... It, it would kind of fit in <laughs> with the time period. It's it's really, ugh, yeah, and ugh. and those are difficult to parse too because you're like, is that them trying to fit into the time, or is that just the casual yeah. racism of the just, late sixties? Yeah, yeah, it's the, 60s. the is that the sixties or the thirties? Yeah. is that the yeah. is that Picard understanding yeah. that he shouldn't know how to hold a cigarette, or, right? Uh-huh. Right. After that, I think in this that might have been the episode. Or, no, no, it's the other one. Big goodbye. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other part, the other part that was big in here um, was actually about homeless, wounded veterans. Yeah. Um, there is a character that um, was written out, but a trooper, um, who is a, a wounded World War II, or no, World War One veteran World at War this I. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Kirk uses him to, to, he pays him to sort of collect intel um, on, on the Beckwith, right, the drug dealer that's back here, and they corner him in an alley Beckwith still has his phaser um and they have a scuffle and and basically the trooper um sees that Beckwith is about to shoot Kirk and pushes him out of the way and gets killed um and then there's this this discussion about it and when they go back there is they they are able to talk to the guardians the guardians again say like time is as it was and they say but someone died like what about trooper did he not matter and the guardians have this response of like not enough or something along those lines, mm. and and Kirk and Spock have trouble with that of like, what does it mean to be um, to be worthwhile to the timeline and all these questions about mm. um, that raise a lot of these issues, but again are a part of this dark part of our society that we um, maybe like to pretend aren't there. These these ideas again, homelessness, wounded veterans that make this a lot darker of an episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think what remains is the um, when McCoy gets there, he has his phaser, and um, someone finds him and takes it and accidentally shoots himself. That's the remnant of that arc, I think. Um, that's still that got changed and rewritten, and that's what that the core of that is. That scene that remains. I do want to talk about that scene too, because like I I don't <clears throat> I, I remember. It's a was it a scene. phaser? I thought it was a communicator. No, it was a phaser. <laughs> because yeah. I was looking at that going, that looks he like He turned a the volume up to eleven. But what, well, that was <laughs> he got destroyed by the that power was... of rock. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not clear to me because I was like, is that a phaser? What is Bones carrying around? What is happening? Yeah, it's um, it's it actually like... it's a zune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was trying to song share with somebody out of his timeline, and that uh, and that'll just... definitely make you erase from yeah, the he, timeline he, completely. He, he turned Much. up the Bluetooth too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I think I think that was just confusing to have in there because like yeah, uh, it didn't have there any was no real purpose for it. Right, it, it and it's a remnant. Right, it's a rewrite of Trooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah I suppose. But it, it's just yeah, as it exists now, it's just taking up just a couple of weird minutes of screen time not even yeah, that probably like 45 seconds and you're just like oh okay yeah because I, well, I kept we didn't really need that time with bones either because he's we know he's like kind of lost it and he's tripping out but yeah. i don't know that we so, needed him 
I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know how much of it is reading into it, but I will say um, I took a class on, on sci-fi in uh, college. Um, and this we watched this, and I, I wrote a paper about this episode. Um, and it was about how this idea of technology, and it kind of goes to the prime directive, that, that when you give technology that is way too advanced to a civilization that's not ready for it, they very quickly destroy themselves. Um, and the idea that, that the, the crew of the Enterprise does that immediately with the Arch, um, but then this person from the 30s, when introduced to a phaser, immediately destroys himself um, because he doesn't understand it. Um, it is sort of a, again, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> reading in it too much or if they meant that. Looking back, it probably feels like that was accidental. Um, yeah. But you could probably make a case for that sort of prime directory argument here. Yeah, I mean, you could. I, I mean, sure. Yeah. And I think I think maybe some <laughs> yeah. kernels of that are there, but to ascribe that intent to it, I think, is, is maybe a little... Because it's just, it's pretty random. But I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, you got to write college sure. papers on something, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> and what are college papers, if not a slight overanalysis <laughs> of just about anything <laughs> you can come up with? Sure. sure. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we. Uh, we can talk about a few different things here. I think we've 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 done the plot pretty well. I do want to mention that um, the the Guardian of Forever is kind of an interesting character because and also the best title ever. Of yeah. Anything. yeah, yeah. The kudos to this for not only yeah the best title of any single entity, but also one of the best episode titles ever. I mean, City on the Edge of Forever is pretty awesome. And oh, it's man, also yeah, it's a, a great title. In it's the also a original script, reference. they name drop it a ton. They say like it's almost like. A city on the edge of forever. <laughs> oh, <nice>. Yeah, it's <laughs> way better that they cut all that out because that yeah, would, agreed. <laughs> that would have yeah, just robbed it of everything. And apparently, the the title is is also supposed to reference um, not only the the city where they wind up, but the city where they land. So it's supposed to be a yes. dual purpose. Um, you know, literally the city, the ruins of the city that the guardian is is in, is in, as well as the city where the where they are transported to. Do they ever mention by name where they are? Are they in Manhattan? Is that I, I don't. I, I, I kind of. I, I don't think they were saying Southern say. California, actually, but. Oh really? Oh, I thought they. I thought they were. I don't know. Then they New probably York. don't say. Probably <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, actually, in the original screenplay, it's Chicago. Okay. I do yeah. remember that. In the I original. Th- in the original. I think they purposely avoid name checking it. I could be wrong, but um, but I think. Uh, oh nope, New York City, circa 1930. Yep. Okay. So that is, that is in the wiki. Apparently, is what they're what they're claiming here. Um, but it could be you know any city. USA. Um, but yeah, the Guardian is is interesting because I don't believe the Guardian is ever... The, it doesn't make it into um, another episode, but there's a lot of like... I think there's several novels that feature the Guardian of Forever, and yeah, I know... Yeah, and I think it shows up in the animated series? Yep. Mm. Um, and it also shows up in several Star Trek video games, which of course you can probably imagine because the possibilities there are are pretty timeless. Shows up in Star Trek Online. I believe it yeah. also shows up in the latest mobile uh, Star Trek game as like whenever there's a timeline problem and you need a shorthand to be like, let's find a way <laughs> to fix it. Sure, an omnipresent machine being thing that can go to any time as long as you don't ask it to go forward or backward right. faster. Or to Guardian slow things down. Or to slow yeah. things down ever. Yeah. It also reminds me a lot of, and I can't remember what TOS episode it is, where they go to that library on the planet that is imploding or something, and they go oh, through yeah, yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds is that me all of our that yesterdays? Is that all our yesterdays? Maybe. Oh, it might be. I can't remember, but it's, mm. it reminds me a lot of that as well, where they walk through doorways and they're in another time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm double so checking it. Definitely... But yeah, that's all our yesterdays. You, uh, Abby, you are correct that uh, the animated series uh, featured it in a in an episode called Yesteryear. Um, hey. So they, they do return to it there. Um, yeah, I mean, th- so you could have done a ton of stuff with this, but uh, in typical Trek fashion, they they kind of move <laughs> on. But I do think that's kind of nice. Again, like maybe one of the benefits of having like 1960s television because you know that's just how stories were told. So. It, it almost kind of has some of the benefits of an anthology series that way where, you know, that reset button yeah. does let you just kind of go, okay, well, that was interesting. Now let's do something else. Um, let's tell a different story. I, I think um, there's a little bit of similarity between the Guardian of... of uh, the Guardian of... Uh, uh, forever. Forever. There we go. I was about to say yesterday, and I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> um, and the Iconians... Um, not sure. a lot, you know, because they're more about like trans th- transporting through like space, not necessarily time. But you know, Trek does seem to be fixated on magic doorways that can take you places, um, <laughs> which is maybe Holodex, just, anybody? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of this is probably maybe a precursor to this kind of stuff that leads to you know like Stargate. You know, ultimately that's yeah. that's kind of you oh, know, absolutely. You know where that goes. Well, I mean, <laughs> Star Trek gate. is the it's a, oh. <laughs> nice. No. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> um, so that well, what else before we wrap this up uh, do we want to uh, do we want to talk about with City on the Edge of Forever? Anything? Is that pretty much? I mean, it, it is. It is the classic time travel episode where you're just like, dude, don't mess with time. Yeah. Just don't do it. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> it never works out well. Yeah. I I think the, there's an interesting balance again back to the original. Uh, screenplay where you have these guardians that are standing around these these ageless um, humanoids watchers that, that have a, yeah basically that have a conversation about it and can tell them things that the guardian doesn't seem to um, the one that we get in the arch form um, and yeah there's a, that balance there they get to talk more about how time works and like the risks and have a conversation but it's also cleaner without them it's also smoother yeah. and they just jump but a lot of the lines that spock comes up with seemingly out of nowhere um are lines that were originally scripted to those guardians where he talks yeah. about like how time works and they jump back and there's a question where they're like how do we even know he'll be here like he could be anywhere and spock's like well i guess this is the best place to be though right <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah he comes up with that really weird like well you know like maybe they're currents or something in yeah. time I guess yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah whereas they could have asked the guardian like because w- the original guardians are like okay here's the thing jump through and you'll show up in the same place but a week early and the guardian here is like hope you jump through to the right place at the right time <laughs> right and, <laughs> yeah. good luck also it's going super fast and you know I'm sure you could I jump can't... through it with millisecond accuracy <laughs> and my programming doesn't allow for me to slow it down so yep. The uh, the analogy in video game speak is uh, like in awesome games done quick and speed running. They oh yeah, it's a, frame perfect. It's a frame perfect trick <laughs> that they had to pull off. Yeah, exactly. So, Kirk and it's uh, it's, it's only it's a only task possible at this point. <laughs> Good thing they had that tricorder, I guess. Yep. Um, it's yeah, a tool tricorder assisted, assisted run. speed run. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, uh, goodness. All right. Well, I think that's uh, probably going to do it for uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Seems silly to, to vote on it thumbs up or thumbs down. I think we're all kind of across the no, board saying, I think like, it's, you know, it's one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek ever made. So. Yes. <laughs> so, I, I, would say, I would say go back um, and read, I mean, to both of you, but to everyone, um, 
if, if you like this episode, and, and there's no reason not to, this is a great episode. Um, reading back through Harlan Ellison's original scripts on it, there's like, I think, four or five versions of it that, that you can get in a book that, I think the book is what run, won uh, the Hugo or won something. Um, is really interesting. No, the, the, this, the episode won the... The Hugo, and Hugo. yeah, so the book yeah. won something else. The book, the book might have won something might else. Nebula, yeah. maybe? It um, might have... I forget, but I don't know. It's worth it. It's I think it's a few bucks on Amazon <laughs> at this point. On, on, <laughs> oh, nice! I'll have to check um, that out. But it also has a ton of commentary by um, DC Fontana, who was one of the uncredited people who had to rewrite the script. At, like Gene Roddenberry took it and said, "Make this track." Um, Gene Alcoon, yeah. who also had to do that <laughs> when um, Gene Roddenberry said, DC Fontana didn't make this track enough, make it more track, those, <laughs> those sort of things. DeForest Kelly has a commentary on it. Like, it, It's an, a very worthwhile thing to pick up if you really like this episode. Very nice. And I think uh, as for us, for our podcast, uh, I believe next we'll probably be doing a uh, Star Trek Discovery discussion. Um, probably sticking to the first few episodes uh, is what it looks like now. Uh, Mirror Universe Jason will be joining us for that conversation uh, as well, <laughs> so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, but for this one, uh, Abby, thank you for suggesting this like a year and a half ago and sticking with us. Yeah, so we hey, could, uh, I'm glad we finally got to do it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. So uh, we may go into more uh, original series stuff in the future as well as we're on our hiatus uh, spinning up for season three. But uh, that has been Sitting on the Edge of Forever, uh, and I'm Jason. And I'm Paul. And uh, just make sure that when you beam down to a weird alien planet with a time portal, you have some sort of frame measuring device so you can pull off those frame perfect tricks. We'll yeah. see you next time. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> Taskbot. It's absolutely Taskbot. <laughs> it's 100%. <laughs> <laughs>